From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, December 3rd. Today, I'm joined by our roundtable regulars to chew over stakeholder activism and companies separating their clean assets from their dirty assets. Imogen Rose Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor and CEO. Hi, David. Hey, Brian, and hello, Imogen. Good to be with you both. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. The blockbuster raise of the week was the $1.8 billion financing for Commonwealth Fusion Systems. It follows smaller but still large raises for fusion startups like Helion and TAE Energy. Impact Alpha reported in September on Commonwealth's successful test of its high-temperature superconducting magnets, a critical milestone on the way to what's called net energy, which is expected in 2025. Ionity raised $700 million for electric vehicle charging in Europe, including a reported $500 million from BlackRock's $5 billion Global Renewable Power Fund. Ionity, based in Munich, plans to quadruple its European EV charging network to 7,000 charging points by 2025. The EU plans to phase out new gas-powered cars by 2035. Breakthrough Energy Ventures backed Sortera Alloys, which uses AI-powered imaging and sensors to recycle aluminum. Aluminum is responsible for 1.2 billion tons of carbon each year and demand is expected to grow more than 50% by 2050. Microfinance lender Microvest is being acquired by the development consultancy DAI. Microvest, which provides debt capital for microfinance institutions in emerging markets, has been a mainstay of many impact portfolios. But fundraising has been tough. Assets under management has fallen to $260 million from $392 million just in 2017. Navajo Nation, which includes parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah, has been a notoriously challenging place to do business. To counter this, the recently signed $1.2 trillion U.S. infrastructure bill includes large allocations for Navajo healthcare, water, and sanitation, and tribal water rights. Last month, Navajo Power, a local energy startup developing utility-scale solar, raised $9.5 million dollars including $3 million in catalytic capital from the Kellogg Foundation. And there's a growing convergence in the wild world of impact measurement and reporting. Two efforts to put a price tag on corporate sustainability performance, Harvard Business School's Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative, and the Value Balancing Alliance agreed to sync up their competing methodologies. And the International Sustainability Standards Board, ISSB, established last month, brings together the Climate Disclosure Standards Board and the Value Reporting Foundation, which itself had consolidated the Sustainability Accounting Standards Boards and other efforts. We're getting there, folks. Impact Alpha subscribers got all of these stories and more in their email each day this week. Now it's time for our featured conversation. Now, David, recently Impact Alpha coined a new term, Renewcos. Tell us, what's that all about? Well, Brian, it comes off of this industry practice of longstanding of calling that new entity that you don't have a name for yet a new co. Um, but now that corporations are starting to spin off their renewable energy and other green assets, we thought they might be called Renewcos, and it made for a nice headline. 
Um, you know, the, 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 the classic example may be auto companies. You know, Tesla is valued at, at more than $1.1 trillion. And even more amazingly, Rivian, which has, you know, zero revenues, is valued at more than $100 billion. Both of those are much higher than GM's or Ford's uh, uh, market caps, where where GM's revenues just for the first nine months of this year were something like ninety three billion dollars. So, um, the, so the pressure is, you know, why not have a uh, why not have an electric car company that's valued more than the more than the gas company gas powered car company that um, you know may sell a lot of cars but has no future. Um, so it's going to be a classic kind of you know business school. Uh, you know, case study in, in managing disruptive innovation. It's like the new co's, the renew co's, you know, need a whole different kind of management structure, business models, financing, and and frankly, they need the the, the currency of, of, of highly valued uh, stock to be able to compete with the upstarts. And it's not just the uh, EV companies that are doing this. Uh, investors are clamoring for this for uh, traditional oil and gas companies as well. Right, Imogen? They are. So in particular, Dan Loeb um, recently wrote a letter to Shell requesting that Shell spin off its renewable efforts into you know, what David would now call a renewco of its own. Remind us who Dan Loeb is? You're speaking to a recovering hedge fund reporter, so I assume that everyone knows who Dan Loeb is. Um, Dan Loeb is sort of the was historically the kind of activist bad boy of hedge fund finance and he would write very grumpy letters to ceos telling them to do things differently he's 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 toned down his act over the the last 10 years or so but is still you know a arguably quite successful activist hedge fund manager and so what you've seen happen is particularly in the wake of the engine number one campaign um, where they went after Exxon and were successful, there's been a raft of investors now now asking oil and gas companies to change their business model. And in the case of Shell, you know, I actually kind of feel bad for Shell because if you look at all the oil majors, Shell is arguably the furthest along the continuum continuum in terms of actually doing renewables and really showing commitments to clean energy. Um, and they're sort of well-known and highly regarded for it. And so now Dan Loeb is showing up and saying, hey, you know, you have this viable renewable business, take that, spin it off, and retain the legacy assets and effectively wind them down. And so the question that you're seeing is, is should what direction should these companies go in? Should they split off like the market seemed to be telling them they should into sort of the new innovative business um, and to retain the, the old business, or are there some benefits to combining the two? Well, my question for both of you is, okay, so we can see that they could unlock lots of shareholder value, so to speak, by letting the shareholders have a piece of, of these high-flying EV or, or renewable companies. But is that actually going to um, uh, increase the, 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 the investment and the deployment of renewables, or is it just going to be rewarding shareholders uh, in some kind of stock swap thing? Well, definitely the cynical answer would be that it's just rewarding shareholders in some kind of stock swap thing, right? But the idea would be, and, and that would be the argument against it, which I think one of the arguments against it, which I think is quite compelling, is you should, Shell should be using the profit it's making today from 
fossil fuel assets to invest in the renewable assets of the future, right? So rather than telling Shell just to sort of give all its money back to shareholders and wind down, you give Shell like a little bit more of a leash and you say, hey, put more money into R&D. You know, if you look at like Saudi Arabia, that's kind of what they're doing and with Saudi Aramco, right? That's that's the big picture goal. The spin-offs, but the spin-off argument says, look, there's all this pent-up desire for ESG investments. There are all these people who say they want to invest in renewables. So let's give them a renewable company to invest in and go out and raise the money from the capital markets rather than relying on Shell or Exxon, whoever, to do it themselves. And so it's a matter of capital allocation decisions and who is best uh, equipped to spur the kind of innovative new companies uh, of the future that are both sustainable and profitable. Yeah, although I do think that there's, there's, I know there's a whole other element to this, which is sort of not directly, although it is indirectly an ESG element, which has to do with sort of other legacy assets, right? So particularly with regards to like the, the big auto manufacturers, one of the reasons they're not profitable or or their profitability is lower is because of legacy costs, particularly around pensions and healthcare. Right? So if you were to spin the, the renewables off, you off, or in this case, the EV business off, you would lower the burden on the legacy company. And if that legacy company then eventually ends up, say, going into chapter 11, you would be taking those pension benefits and other factors, or in the case of, say, you know, an oil company or a coal company, you know, a business that needs to be fixed and putting the burden onto the taxpayer. So there's, there are other reasons that are not just sort of climate and technology related for these kinds of restructurings. And so just a just a quick follow up on that, uh, Imogen, just for my own sake. So these, because that's an interesting point here, that they, these legacy companies have legacy assets, but they also have legacy liabilities, one of them being pensions, as you mentioned. And so a Rivian or a Tesla, they, they don't have pension obligations. Is that is that correct? So they, they, they are... don't offer defined benefit pensions. Defined benefit pensions were something that old pre sort of 1976 companies would offer. And now, if you, you know, a Tesla or whatever, you'll get a 401k, you won't get a pension obligation that is managed by the company. It's an interesting phenomenon, though, because as you said, there's some of the pressure from hedge fund managers like Dan Loeb and picking up on the success last year of the um, engine number one campaign to replace some of the directors at Exxon rely on votes from uh, asset managers and whatnot like BlackRock who are supposed to be representing their uh, own clients, which in some cases, as you say, are 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 union pension funds or or are public employee pension funds and other things. So you you might have interests on different si- stakeholder interests, as it were, on different sides of these questions. And you might want the unions may be interested in protecting their pensions, but they also may be wanting to maximize their own share values in their union pension fund so they can pay the pensions. Um, how, how do the stakeholder interests sh- shake out in these in these proxy fights now as, as they go forward? Yeah, I mean, unions in particular, you know, unions historically have done their own shareholder engagement and have engaged in shareholder campaigns. It becomes more of a challenge actually when we're talking about climate change because 
you know, as we've discussed in the past, um, the fossil fuel industry actually has a large labor representation. So it's not necessarily always the case that organized labor is going to stand on the side of renewables and the clean energy shift. Um, the issue that the, the Black Rocks of this world have historically is they tend to be reluctant to vote against management because they would argue that it's because they'd rather they're so large that when they shift it's a, it's a big deal so they'd rather do more engagement behind the scenes um now in the last couple of years again particularly because of uh shareholder activists they've come under pressure to be more forward-leaning particularly on climate related issues what's also interesting is, is you do tend to find that the large public pensions particularly in democratic district districts will be in favor of things like the engine number one Exxon campaign. Interestingly enough, though, when we look at Dan Loeb, um, Dan Loeb is not popular amongst pension unions because he is one among um, a handful of hedge fund managers who has given a lot of money to charter schools and um which is up which is which is not popular with teachers unions and others no. like that and the the unions hated him so much that they actually um got pension plans including uh rhode island to they can't get them to divest from fossil fuels but they can get them to divest from hedge funds so a lot of pension funds either a lot of public pension plans either reduced their hedge fund allocation or got out of the hedge funds entirely and in fact, one of the people who was targeted specifically because she invested in Third Point, which is Dan Loeb's fund, was Gina Raimondo, who was the treasurer of Rhode Island and now Commerce Secretary. Hmm. <laughs> Fun facts you didn't know. You did ask about Dan Loeb and unions and hedge funds. Well, this... This whole issue of corporate governance, this is fascinating because we had a call. We had the third of our in our series of calls this week on uh, Impact Alpha's uh, series, uh, Capitalism Reimagined. And, uh, we, you know, reimagining capitalism has become something of a, of a cottage industry. Um, and this is, was a presentation, a briefing from something called the New Capitalism Project, which um, not only is, has, has dissected the... Um, the failures of the current system, but is also trying to put forward a kind of vision of the new system, as well as a set of kind of initiatives or strategies that might help us get us there. And one of them that came up on the call was around rallying a whole set of constituencies, stakeholders, if you will, um, around corporate action. So it had been obviously a lot of shareholder action, um, shareholder um, activism, um, as you mentioned, Dan Loeb, as you mentioned, um, engine number one in, in Exxon. And by all accounts, next year's proxy season is going to be wild because now, you know, sort of the 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 game is on and, 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 and some of these um, uh, shareholder resolutions are actually starting to win. Um, and and majority action, uh, a big uh, activist uh, firm around uh, activist organization uh, uh, sort of fomenting shareholder, the shareholder revolt. Um, is saying, hey, let's bring in not just shareholders, but all these other stakeholders, as you say. So employees and and um, and consumers and really mount kind of what they're calling multi multi sector, you know, um, campaigns around corporate accountability. Majority Action's Eli Kassergod Staub talked about the multi movement engine to shift power and corporate governance. 
there's no transforming capitalism without confronting harmful corporate behavior. And there's no confronting corporate behavior without taking on the structures of how we hold corporations accountable. And so what we envision is a coordinated effort across all major progressive social movements to be mobilizing grassroots activists to demand fundamental changes in how corporations are governed and do so in a way that can be achieved through powers and responsibilities that shareholders already have. Now this rests on a core insight, which is that what counts as responsible corporate governance has never been a fixed thing. It's always been contested. It's always been influenced by what's happening in broader society. It's always been the product of push and pull of power. And so this goes beyond activists and shareholders partnering on resolutions at individual companies, as great as that is. We want to dramatically expand who in civil society sees themselves as having a stake in how corporations are governed and shift what counts as responsible governance by dragging the most harmful status quo practices of the corporate governance ecosystem into the light, calling out long overdue questions or calling rather the long overdue questions of what real sustainability demands and ultimately catalyzing transformational change in what boards are responsible for and how. So I'm just wondering how that squares now, as you say, with, you know, some of these cross currents, you know, the, the stakeholders may not always be, uh, the may, stakeholders may not always be aligned. Wasn't it easier when investors just cared about money? Well, there is an argument, I think, I wonder what you think about this, Imogen, that you could get most of the way there um, for just shareholders just thinking about money. And, and maybe if they actually sort of accounted for, for, for systemic risks and, and, and climate risks and, and all that, that the shareholders could carry the weight um, and in a sense, be the sort of representatives of, of the other stakeholders. And maybe it would be simpler. Some people say that, Brian. I think that the problem, yeah, I, well, I think if, if, if shareholders just think about money, it's, the issue is not thinking about money. The issue is time duration, right? It's so it's the sort of, you know, we, the, the, the markets can be, irrational longer than you you can be rational or whatever it is you can't hold out you might be correct in your view you might be correct in your view that you know fossil fuels are terrible and eventually all these firms are going to turn into pumpkins but that doesn't mean that there's not money to be made along the way to pumpkin time and so it's hard for and you know the idea we've talked about this before the, the idea of long-term asset ownership is like it's actually much more nuanced than that and so it's 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 hard to hold those long-term you are correct positions during a time when the incorrect position is making a lot of money so there's and that disconnect so we're starting to see that disconnect happen now for example with the oil majors because we had effectively a decade where oil prices were low and energy stocks were just trundling along and now you know that oil prices have risen and not seeing volatility, it's much harder to stay out of the fossil fuel trade or tell companies that they should be doing things differently when they can make a lot of money from fossil fuels. So I think that's the challenge with sort of the long-termism shareholder argument. My other problem is I think that, back to your broader point, I think that proxy voting only gets us so far. Like we're starting to see some proxy wins, but you know, in a universe where you still can't get like the major banks to separate their CEO from their chairman roles, you know, and you can't, if you look at a company like, you know, my favorite, like Facebook, and you think, here's a company we can all agree is. You mean Meta? 
Hmm? You mean Meta? Oh, I do. I'm sorry. The company formerly known as Facebook. Like, there's not, given the way that the shares are, uh, share ownership, ownership structure is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg basically has all the control. So there is nothing, and that's true of some other tech companies as well. So there's nothing really that proxy voters can do to influence the outcome of that company. What do you do with that? And, and so the answer to a certain extent has to be, yeah, that you need stakeholder capitalism, that, that consumers have to step up, employees have to step up, that you can't put all of the onus on shareholders. And ultimately government has to. And you can't put all the onus on shareholders to be the ones to do the right things because A, it's not always in their immediate economic interest and B, they may not have the power and influence that you think they do. And back to Facebook, yes, from an ESG perspective, you could say it's a terrible company, but it's still making money. So what do you do with that? So it sounds like if I can sum up Imogen's position here in response to David's uh, recap of the capitalism reimagined cottage industry, the answer to reimagining capitalism is regulation. <laughs> I think it's got to be a part of it. And I think that... Well, or, sorry to interrupt, Imogen, but this is a hat tip to you, or um, uh, uh, mobilizing uh, worker power. You had a column earlier in the year about uh, the... The, the, the pension funds um, getting behind actually the workers um, at Amazon as they organized in Alabama. Um, as you recall, the, the, the union vote went, uh, went, went against the union back then, but um, there's been some news this week, um, redeeming, possibly redeeming your column. Yeah, that they have to, the court has ruled that they have to stage a new vote because Amazon did some naughty things and that they weren't supposed to do in encouraging voting against unionization. So they get another shot at unionizing. And where will the institutional investors be in the new fight? That, that's an excellent question. My expectation is, is yeah, they will they will speak out in favor of unionizing because it goes back to what we were saying earlier that ultimately this is union assets. And and when when these issues rise to the levels of headlines, that's when you tend to see the unions putting pressure on their pension plans to act certain ways. I think the problem is you really need, and this sort of speaks to the real imagining capitalism point, you really need pensions and the investment offices to take these kind of factors into consideration when they're making investment, investment and asset allocation decisions or when they're making proxy voting decisions, not when it's got to boiling point and they're seeing their constituents jump up and down and demand action and change from them. They, they should consider it part of their job but in our framing of fiduciary duty that is tends not to be the case ah one last point Fidu uh, re, re, redefining fiduciary duty is another major tenet of reimagining capitalism of course it is and it is now my fiduciary duty to wrap up this great conversation thank you so much Imogen Rose Smith I, I think you just redefined fiduciary duty there thank you Brian <laughs> and thank you, David Bank. And thank you for both doing your duty. Uh, it's a pleasure, as always. And that's going to do it for your Impact Briefing this week. More all day, every day at impactalpha.com. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief. Podcast listeners get $100 off their first year subscription. 
Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm TPICAP. Until next time, take good care.